Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. This is Carmen Gomez Galisteo, and today I am host of a new interview with author Lara Gabriel, who is going to speak with us about her latest book, Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies, published by the University of California Press. So uh, welcome, Lara. Thank you for having me, Carmen. This is lovely to be here. So I am going to introduce you. So you're a field writer and you're also a researcher and your work on Marion Davies has been featured in the Missouri Review, the Wall Street Journal and on PBS American Experience, among others. You have also spoken about Davies at field festivals, uh, retrospectives uh, all around the world. And you're a consultant on her life and legacy for books, dissertations and field projects. And um, this biography of Davies, Captain of Her Soul, has been included in Alta Journal's top six. 16 books to, to read last September. So why, why did you decide to write this book on Marion Davies? Well, I've always been a classic film person. I've always loved classic film. And when I was about 13, I got a book called The Times We Had, which for years has been marketed as Marion Davies' memoir. It's not really. We could talk about that uh, later if you want, but um, it's uh, it's been marketed as her memoir. And I read this book at 13 and I knew even at that young age that this was a woman who had an extremely interesting life. And uh, so she was always at the back of my mind. And in 2011, I started a, a blog, a classic film blog, uh, where, you know, I wrote these really in-depth articles about classic film and I realized how much I, I loved it. Um, I loved uh, the, the research and the writing. So I started exploring the idea of doing something bigger. And Marion Davies was the first name that came to mind. She had always been there as somebody who was really interesting and who didn't have a whole lot written about them. So I couldn't shake her. She was, in, she was just gnawing at me to write this story. So I took it as a sign. I went down to LA, found her papers, and started, started working on this. And it all came together really quickly. I had a lot of luck. Uh, there are still m- many people important in her life who are still living, including several family members. And the more I learned about her, the more it became clear that her story needed to be told. She needed to have her voice given back to her. She's been so wronged uh, and so misunderstood in so many ways that it, it, it needed, the, the, the wrongs that have been afforded her in her life needed to be corrected. Um, she was 
an exceptional woman, a rare human being, and really the, 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 the boss of her own life, which is important, especially in this day and age, when we're prioritizing giving women back their own stories. She was not just a proxy to Hearst. She was not uh, somebody who had her life lived for her. She, she made all her own decisions, and I felt that that needed to be corrected. I really like this this anecdote that that you that you first came uh, upon her at 13 and then you wrote a book about her because this is a little bit my my story with Gone with the Wind because I I have watched the I have watched the the movie like a million times when I, when I was a child because well, there there were no so many television channels and Gone with the Wind was on television every year I think and then when I was 13 I read the book for the first time and it is enormous and I like it a lot but then life took me to to other parts and then when I finished my doctoral dissertation, uh, I wanted to do something different, and I wrote a book on Gone with the Wind. So I identify with that, that it is a, a childhood or early teenage <laughs> obsession. It, it, that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, there, there are these things that just stick with you, you know, and then clearly Gone with the Wind spoke to you, and Marion Davies spoke to me, and they they were always just at the at the back of, of our minds, and this is... I mean, I've, I've heard several stories like this. It's um, certain people just just uh, have a connection to, to certain things. Maybe maybe built in, maybe maybe uh, you know, maybe maybe it's a a, a childhood uh, you know, or it reminds you of things. Anyway, it's it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and sometimes I said, oh, oh, I, I, I was thinking to myself, I say, oh, but I wrote a book on Gone with the Wind, <laughs> and yeah. it amazed me. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh. and I was like, wow, <laughs> so many times I have watched it and whatever, and rewatched it and read and reread, and and now I have come to this point. <laughs> yeah, that's so cool. So you, you explained that it took you 10, 10 years to complete the, the book. What were the, yes. the hardest thing about, about about this time? What challenges did you did you face? Because I suppose that 10 years, well, it, it, a lot of things happen and you have your highs and lows. And Yes, I was, as I mentioned, I was very lucky in, in many ways because this is a woman who died, you know, 60 years ago now. Uh, and... So many of her friends are gone. Um, most of her friends are gone. And so a challenge was that I wasn't able to directly interview people like Frances Marion, Anita Luce, Billy Haynes, these people who were really important in her life. But that was mitigated by the fact that there's one other biography that was written about her uh, by a man named Fred Lawrence Giles. And I managed to get his interview tapes And he interviewed all these people back in the 70s. So I have his I have his tapes that I heard uh, that I that I have. Um, you can't see me, but they're, they're right behind me here. Uh, and so I was able to hear the questions he asked them and how they answered. And then I was able to draw my own, uh, you know, draw my own conclusions from what they were saying and weave that into my own narrative. And And, and so that was, that was great. So that challenge, fortunately for me, was, was not what it could have been. Um, it, that could have been, that could have been a real hardship, but, but I, I have these tapes, which is, which is great. Um, you know, mo most of the, most of the, the challenging parts of it 
are around that, right? Around this was so long ago. Uh, there's also the fact that I can't access her medical records. Um, her medical records, because this was so long ago, have all been destroyed due to uh, HIPAA laws and things. So I had to figure out what was going on with her medically. She had she had some health issues, and I had to figure out what was going on with her through other means than her medical records. So uh, that that was a little bit of a tough hill, but but we managed it. <laughs> so. Uh, so those were probably the main challenges, but but as I said, I've I've had lots of luck with who is still alive. So yeah, and 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 you mentioned that there are several books about her already, and also this memoir that you were mentioning that is a memoir of of sorts. So mm-hmm. uh, were the books uh, was the memoir helpful when you were writing this book, or they were more of an obstacle because you have this memoir that is not so accurate. The memoir is actually a posthumous cut and paste of Marion's autobiographical tapes. So after she died, uh, these two editors got her tapes, her autobiographical tapes, thought that there might be some interest in Marion Davies because this was around the time of the Patricia Hearst kidnapping. And they, they fused these tapes together to make what... Marion's memoir might have looked like if she had gone through with it. She didn't go through with with her with her autobiography herself. They stopped the the sessions. They stopped the sessions where Marion was preparing for her autobiography, and there was a reason for that. The reason that they stopped those tapes was because it was becoming clear that an honest autobiography was not going to happen. It was a difficult time in Marion's life. Uh, it was. Uh, it was a time when she was being watched by a lot of people. She was being watched by her lawyer, by the Hearst sons, and she just wasn't able to communicate all of the things that were that were going to be necessary for an autobiography. So they so they stopped the, the tapes. Um, but but after her death, they put these things together into what it might have looked like if she had gone through with it at that time in her life. So. It's very limited. The usefulness uh, of the times we had for me is very limited. The tapes themselves, which I fortunately have access to as well, the tapes are much more enlightening. Um, they're a conversation between Marion and the friend who was helping her with those tapes. Uh, she's funny. She, I hear how, how she talks, how she interacts with him, what kinds of words she uses, her stutter, right? All of these, all of these things that are really important to kind of understanding how she is. Um, and in addition to that, the friend who helped her uh, do these tapes is still alive at 90. He's going to be 99 this year. Uh, so he was a huge help to me regarding that and also regarding the fact that he was this this same man was was also uh the only member of the press witness to the day of Hearst's death so that's one of the lucky things that that I encountered that he was still alive and he was uh really with it and remembered everything and and all that so all that to say that the that the quote-unquote memoir um one is not really a memoir and two It's a reflection of 
of uh, a difficult time in Marion's life that never came to fruition and, uh, you know, an autobiography that never came to fruition. So uh, knowing the history of it, I think, is important if you're going to use it. I used it very uh, in a very specific way. At the beginning of the book, I talk about it a little bit, that the tapes that I have are pretty uh, difficult to understand. Through years and years and years of having listened to these tapes, um, I can understand pretty much everything Marion says. But if there's ever a question... I go to the transcript of the tapes. There is a full transcript of the tapes that exists uh, at um, at the Academy Library. I go to that. Um, and then if there's still a word that was inaudible or not be able to be understood by the transcriber, then I go to the times we had. So I, I had a system of how I used the times we had. First the tapes, then the transcription, then the times we had. So, very organized process. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned that, that in the tapes, uh, you can hear her stutter at times. Yeah. How did her stutter uh, affect her personally and also career-wise because she was an actress? Right. She, uh, it was a huge part of her identity. It affected just about everything she did. It was pretty, it was pretty significant. Uh, I would say it was probably moderate to severe there have been some uh, some people who said oh she had a mild stutter it was not mild it was it it, it came it, it affected her a lot um and you hear it on the tapes and she sometimes has a really really hard time talking so uh she was in movies at during the time when uh the film industry was transitioning to sound So this was really difficult for her. It it uh, it affected her psychologically. Um, she felt that her career was going to be over if sound were to uh, if sound were to make the splash that people thought it would. And so she was on her guard for a while. You know, 1927, 1928. And then when it became clear that sound was going to uh, was going to be the industry standard she sank into a deep depression, felt that this was it for her. And, uh, but she had to, she kind of had to figure out a way to make it work for herself. She either had to retire, it, which would mean breaking her contract, or she just had to dive in and do it. And she made a screen test. Her screen test was great. She has a beautiful voice, uh, you know, just kind of low and, and mellifluous. And so her, her screen test showed that she could make this transition to sound. Uh, but she, she had this, this hang up about her voice, but she, uh, she, she dove in and she did it. And she worked extremely hard uh, in these early days of sound Uh, to memorize her lines to the point where she never stuttered on screen. Um, she, she figured out a way to, uh, to sort of choreograph her lines, to sort of choreograph her lines so that uh, she had muscle memory and didn't have to worry about stuttering. So if you watch her sound films, she's completely fluent, completely, uh, 
comfortable and natural. Um, I shouldn't really say comfortable because she was she wasn't comfortable um, personally, uh, but but she was she was natural. But but she was she was always uh, she didn't like it. She didn't like sound uh, because she had the this hang up about her voice and she had to work so hard to get this dialogue out uh, without stuttering. And but she did it. She did it. And she even she even went on radio. She she made that transition to radio relatively late in uh, the big scheme of things, but uh, but she braved the radio waves. And um, something that surprised me reading this book because I didn't know about her early life is that um, well, many actors at this time in classical Hollywood they came from very modest backgrounds, but but hers was very different. That was not her kind of family. What was her family like, and what kind of childhood did, did she have? Well, she grew up sort of lower middle class, I would say, um, lower middle class in New York. Uh, she spent a little bit of time in Chicago as well, but she. Uh, she was the youngest of five children, um, Irish Catholic family, and her older brother. So there, there were four girls and a boy, and her older brother uh, died tragically in a in a in, in a boating accident. He was he had taken a boat out on Lake Saratoga, uh, and the boat overturned, and he drowned at the age of almost 12. So that affected the family a lot. Um, the father essentially abandoned the family, was heartbroken, couldn't couldn't bear life without his son. Uh, and the mother was left to raise these four girls, uh, more or less as a single mother. And uh, the girls, you know, the, the, her father was a lawyer, a Columbia educated lawyer, but He tended to take cases that he couldn't win. So the family was kind of low on money. I wouldn't say that they were poor, but they were, um, you know, as I mentioned before, sort of lower middle class. Uh, and the mom wanted the girls to get out of Brooklyn. You know, she wanted them to get out of this, uh, this situation, the financial situation that they were in. And this was common. This was common uh, among families that had girls. Uh, in, in, in this, uh, in this sort of financial class, uh, to encourage the girls to marry up, you know, to marry well, because there weren't a whole lot of avenues for women to, uh, to, uh, sort of increase their, their social standing. And the way to do it was to get married. And so Marion's mom saw the stage as a way for her girls to marry, meet and marry uh, a wealthy man. So all the girls went on the stage. Um, Marion had a tough time in school because of her stutter. Um, she had a tough time in school uh, and she convinced her mom to let her leave school early so that she could be on the stage. So uh, like her sisters. So her mom said, okay, fine. She was young. The mom was a little hesitant about it because she was so young, but um but she knew that Marion was kind of miserable. So she, she let her do it. And so that's, that was what her childhood was like, uh, sort of preparing to keep house for and, and marry a, a wealthy man, um, before she, before she went on the stage. And her mom taught the girls how to cook, how to sew, how to, you know, keep house 
all of that. And Marion had a real gift for sewing. She was kind of a prodigy at, at sewing um, and embroidery, needlework, that kind of thing. She made her all her own clothes, um, made clothes for her friends, for her dolls, you know. So anyway, uh, that's, that's kind of a fun little side note there. Um, but yeah, that was what her early life was like. And uh, many actors at the, at the time also they changed their their last names, but but in her case it was not really her decision, but her but her sister. So how did she come to be Marion Davies instead of Marion Doris? Yeah, so the the last name, the last name was Doris, right? It was a uh, it is a, a French Huguenot uh, last name that was. Um, from a branch of the family that had fled persecution in France and settled in Ireland. So she was pretty much entirely of Irish extraction, except for that one branch of the family. And uh, so the family last name was Doris. Her sister, Rini, who was the first to go on the stage, thought that Doris didn't really look very good on a marquee. So, uh, so she saw a sign, a real estate sign, uh, that was advertising the services of a guy whose last name was Davies. And Rini said, that looks really cool. <laughs> so she uh, so she decided to take the name Davies as her stage name, and all the sisters followed followed suit. So Rini Davies, then Ethel Davies, then Rose, Rose and Marion weren't on the stage at the same time. Um, but Rose Davies and Marion Davies, they, they all became Davies. And 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 uh, as you say, they they started as a as chorus girls. And how did she make the the move to the to the movies? Right. So she was a chorus girl for quite some time, uh, and she was going out with a man named Paul Block, who is still the family is still known in the United States. The Block Communications uh, firm is still active in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, so she was going out with with Paul Block, and Paul Block noticed this quality in Marion that was that was proving to be successful in this new age of movie stardom. This was this was a new thing. Um, movie stars were a new thing in the teens, and people like Mary Pickford, people like Florence Lawrence, had this combination of charisma, charm, wit that that Paul Block saw that Marion had. So he said this would be a great career change for Marion. Uh, it would be very lucrative uh, for her to go from the chorus to being uh, uh, in the movies. And he didn't really have any artistic uh, did any any artistic uh, skill for for making movies so he went to his friend william randolph Hearst, who had met marion before he had met marion at this restaurant called the delmonico delmonico's which paul block where paul block took marion every now and then for parties and things and so Hearst knew marion a little bit paul block went to Hearst and said look i am thinking that marion would do really well in the movies, would you be willing to back, finance, produce um, a movie for Marion to see how she does? And Hearst said, no, he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to take the risk. 
Um, it was it was too much of a financial risk for him. He uh, had been in the movie business for some time now. Uh, he had recognized the benefit that that movies uh, had to to uh, increase his newspaper circulation. So he did, was doing newsreels, shorts, that kind of thing. And he was he was risk averse. So he said, uh, no, I don't want to do that. So Block said, okay, I'll do it myself. So he financed and backed this movie called Runaway Romany. That was Marion's first movie. And uh, he told Hearst that he should go see it, that he should go see this movie because Hearst was kind of japping him and saying, you know, I think, I don't think that uh, this movie is so much of a hit, you know. And so Paul Block said, well, just go see it. So Hearst went to see it. And that is where he fell in love with Marion Davies. He fell in love with Marion Davies on the screen uh, and came out of the screening speechless, went to Paul Block and said, I want to be formally introduced to Marion. Because um, in those days you needed a formal introduction, you know, just meeting casually at a restaurant doesn't really count. So Paul Block introduced Hearst to Marion Hearst signed her to Cosmopolitan Productions, and that's where she spent the rest of her career. And they, the two of them, Hearst and Marion, fell in love, and they were an established couple by 1919. Yeah, and, and they were together for, for 30 years, even though he was married right. and he couldn't possibly get a, a divorce. So what they, what kind of relationship did they, they, they have? Because they endured for, for 30 years until he died. So it was a very, very long relationship. It was a very long relationship and very devoted and loving. Marion, as we mentioned before, had been raised to marry. She had been raised to marry a wealthy man. And she got herself kind of into a bit of trouble when she fell in love with a man she couldn't marry. So after, you know, Hearst tried many, many times to get a divorce, it came very close once, but it ultimately fell through. And uh, Marion came to accept, she came to accept that this was the situation. She wasn't going to leave and she wasn't going to, uh, marry anybody else because, you know, as she said on her tapes, you know, on her autobiographical tapes, she said, I had plenty of opportunities to leave and get married, but how can you marry when you're in love with someone else? So that was the situation. And something that you explore in the book is because they always it has been said that the Susan Kane in Citizen Kane was based on, on Marion. Was it or, or not? No, not not really. I mean, Citizen Kane uh, has been misunderstood, I think, for a really long time. Citizen Kane uh, is it's a brilliant movie in so many ways. You know, it's it's revolutionary. It was it was one of the first films to film with a closed set, you know, like, like ceilings. And of course, that that beautiful screenplay. Um, but the characters, certainly the character of Charles Foster Kane is very close to Hearst, right? Very, very close. But it's not all Hearst. It's not all Hearst. There are other people who went into Wells's characterization of, of Charles Foster Kane. And likewise, lots of people went into the characterization of Susan Alexander. And because people think that Charles Foster Kane is Hearst, 
they think that Susan Alexander is Marion Davies. There just aren't a lot of other people who are still so well known as Hearst and Marion um, uh, who went into, into those characterizations. One of those people, and actually the person who fits the, fits the personage of, of uh, Susan Alexander almost to a T, almost exactly, is this woman named Gonawalska, right? Gonawalska was, a, um, was a, an opera singer who, uh, you know, not a very talented opera singer, who made her debut in Havana, uh, and this this guy named Harold McCormick, who later became vice president of International Harvester and who was a backer of the Chicago Opera, one of the founders, I think, of the Chicago Opera. He plucked her out of Havana, brought her to the Chicago Opera and financed her career. And they married. Um, and she uh, ultimately kind of used him for what she could get out of him. And then um, and then she she left him right they divorced um and it was it was Gonawalska who got the divorce Harold McCormick was very upset about it uh anyway so um that's much closer right that's much closer to the characterization of uh, of Susan Alexander and the relationship between Susan Alexander and Charles Foster King but the problem is that nobody knows Gonawalska anymore uh and nobody knows Harold McCormick right so People know Hearst and they know Marion, so they think that that's who it is, but really it's not. So, and, and Wells has said that, Orson Wells said that later, and he really regretted, I think, the fact that people considered uh, Susan Alexander to be Marion Davies. He wrote the intro, actually, to The Times We Had. If you read The Times We Had, he writes this beautiful intro that essentially says, Marion Davies was nothing like Susan Alexander, um, you know, love the, the relationship between Hearst and Marion was mutually loving and love is not the subject of Citizen Kane. So that's that. And then the other thing I think that's important to, to think about is that Citizen Kane came and went pretty quickly in 1941. Um, it was a, uh, you know, it was, it was well, well received critically, but didn't win best picture. It, it disappeared for a while and didn't have a rebirth until the 50s. And by the 1950s, Hearst was dead. And most of the people who were seeing the, the sort of re-release or, you know, rebirth of Citizen Kane had not lived through Hearst's America. And they couldn't really tell the difference between myth and reality. Uh, so that's, uh, that's an important point, I think, that it's not really often brought up. But um, but just the fact that Citizen Kane um, had a rebirth in uh, a time when people didn't really know how to tell. And um, but however, you, you you tell us that there is a character in a novel by Aldous Huxley that is inspired by by Marion. Uh, so what is her legacy in culture or in popular culture? Yeah, uh, she has been portrayed many times in. Um, movies and also you mentioned Aldous Huxley's um after many a summer dies the swan Marion um claimed not to ha have ever met Aldous Huxley um but he you know he he clearly based this character on Marion and Hearst uh or this character on Marion and the other um 
Joe Stoit, um, you know, the, the millionaire on, um, on Hearst. And then there are the, you know, the more direct, uh, the more direct portrayals, like in the cat's meow, right. Um, and in, uh, RKO 281, where Melanie Griffith plays Marion and the Hearst Davies affair, and most recently in Mank, where Amanda Seyfried won, uh, or got an Oscar nomination for, for playing Marion. And, uh, so people think, I think in a certain part of society, people think that they know Marion Davies, um, because of these portrayals in, in film. But the problem is that there has never been an accurate portrayal of Marion Davies on film. It's not the actress's fault. Um, it's, that's one thing that I always want to make very clear because people say, oh, she didn't do a good job, right? Well, somebody like Virginia Madsen, for example, did all her homework um, and talked to all the right people. But, but actresses are limited, um, they're limited by the script. They're limited by the director. They're limited by the project itself. So I, I um, never like to to blame the the actress for the fact that this was not an accurate portrayal of Marion. Um, you know, they they, uh, they do the best they can. Uh, so, but but the fact remains. You know, there has never been um, an accurate portrayal of Marion Davies on on film, even though there have been a lot. Right? There have there have been all those those ones that I mentioned and and more. So, yeah. And, and also, apart from being a, an actress, uh, she was well known for, for being the founder of a hospital for, for children. How, so yeah. how did she decide that she wanted to, to open one? She moved to L.A. in 1924, and uh, it came to her attention that there was, it, there was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of poverty in West L.A. It was um, primarily... Uh, Mexican and Japanese immigrant families who were plagued by racism. Uh, the unions w wouldn't let uh, Mexican Mexican uh, people join, uh, and so there th these people were sort of trapped in poverty, and they couldn't access medical care. So Marion uh, talked to another community organization, and and she founded this uh, th this group called, well, called the Marion Davies Foundation, right? That then oversaw the Marion Davies Children's Clinic. So the Marion Davies Children's Clinic uh, was a, uh, a hospital for children where uh, low-income children from West LA could get medical care completely for free Doctors volunteered their time uh, to treat these kids uh, who would come in for everything from, you know, uh, uh, pertussis to, you know, cerebral palsy or, you know, and, and everything. They treated everybody. And everything was completely free of charge, um, founded or funded, I should say, by the, uh, by the Marion Davies Foundation. So it... Uh, it was credited with um, with curbing a pretty severe outbreak of diphtheria in in that area um, uh, during that time. If it wasn't for the Marion Davies Clinic, a lot of people say, then there could have been a lot more children who who died. So I was lucky to have. Um, 
some interviews from children who were treated at the Marion Davies Clinic. And they all said, you know, aside from all the all the really cool things that came with the Marion Davies Clinic, like like uh, she had these huge Christmas parties for the kids, uh, you know, where everybody would get toys and the families would get would get groceries and and things. Uh, and and one of the kids said they found they found out quickly that if you had your tonsils out, you would get ice cream for a week. So um, so everybody wanted to get their tonsils out. Uh, but so aside from all that, it was it was a haven. It was a haven for many families from this uh, this bad treatment that they would get so often outside the clinic. And it was uh, essential to the health of the community. Um, uh, and also something that you portray because I, I really like the book a lot because you mm -hmm. showed many aspects of her, of her life, like her relationship with hers, that is like what most of the people know about, but also her stutter, her, her relationship with her, with her, with her family, with her, with her sister and her niece, and also you you show that she had problems with alcohol for for years. So yeah. can you tell us a bit about about this battle with alcohol? Sure. Um, she uh, she had been well. I, I think what what I'd like would like to start with is Anita Luce mentioned when Mar that Mar when Marion was a teenager, they noticed a a problem and they didn't have a word for it. They noticed that Marion was drinking a lot more than everybody else. Couldn't seem to control how much she was. Uh, drinking and it, it didn't really seem to affect her um you know it didn't really it it, it uh, she had a really high tolerance despite you know she was a she was a, a very thin lithe person but she you know she could drink a lot and and not have it affect her at all and she said we didn't have a word for this we 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 knew that there was something going on with marion but we we didn't know what what it was And uh, her her drinking started really with when she had uh, a line to speak on stage, and she had always asked her her producers on on uh, on Broadway to let her sing her lines because when you sing you don't stutter right. Um, stutterers don't stutter when they sing. So she always asked to sing her lines. And this one particular producer said, no, you can't. Um, so she was, she was concerned about this. So she went to her mom and she said, look, I can't, I can't do this. I, I'm not going to be able to say this line. And her mom said, oh, well, I think, I think you can do it. Let me help you. So she came backstage that night with a bottle of champagne And Marion had never had a drink before, uh, and her, her mom poured her a glass of champagne. She took a sip and, you know, thought it didn't taste so good, but her mom encouraged her to drink the whole thing. Um, and she drank it, and she realized how relaxed it made her feel. And, uh, and so this struggle that she had with anxiety around her voice, um, you know, her, her stuttering, was soothed by this alcohol and it became a crutch. 
um, for the rest of her life to soothe this anxiety that she had one around her voice and two later around the uh, heartbreak of her situation with Hearst, you know, that she could never marry him, um, that she had to live this life that was not accepted by a lot of people in society and alcohol soothed that. And that was, it was, she was essentially self-medicating for, for anxiety with this, with this alcohol dependency. Yeah, and, and and you have mentioned again this heartbreak that that she felt because she really wanted to to marry Harris badly, uh, but he could never divorce as we as we said before. But then uh, he died. Um, s- soon after his his death, she finally uh, could get married. So, what kind of marriage did she have? Was it a happy one? No, it was it was it was a difficult one. This was a family friend. Uh, This was a man who had initially gone out with her sister, Rose, and it didn't work out. Uh, But she, she married him shortly after Hearst died. And uh, I I go into it in the book about, about why that happened. It's a whole, it's a whole long involved story, but, but she married him and he was, he looked like Hearst, which everybody remarked on. Everybody said he looks just like him, but the similarities ended with his looks. Um, Hearst was a very sophisticated, uh, educated, intellectual man. And Horace was kind of a brute. Uh, and he would scare Marion um, and what was kind of controlling around her, um, you know, would do things like cut the phone lines when he felt that she was talking on the phone too long. Uh, and, it, it was a hard, it was a hard time. And she nearly divorced him several times, but never went through with it. She never really had the heart to, to divorce him. She always went back to him after a fight. Um, and so she remained married to Horace until she died uh, 10 years later. So yeah. I mean, it's sad. Yeah. It, it, it's really sad because she wanted to get married and when she finally did, well, it was not the kind of marriage that that she could have expected or, or, or wanted. So uh, yeah, how were her really final good. years? How were well, her, her final years? Be- because yeah. on the one hand, she, she had this husband who was difficult and... Mm-hmm. She, had, she had a lot of difficulties with Horace. That was one part of the equation. But... She also um, had a lot of good times. I mean, she uh, she got really into real estate. She bought a lot of buildings in New York and uh, took her great nieces and great nephews to New York and saw My Fair Lady several times and uh, financed or backed um, her nephew's play Kismet, right, which then became hugely successful. And that was that was a really uh, great thing for uh for Marion and, and for Charlie Lederer. So, uh, so, so it was not all bad. She, um, she, she definitely had some highs during, during her last years, but, but this marriage with Horace and she still missed Hearst so much and had trouble with the Hearst sons. Um, if, if we were to characterize her last years as happy or sad, I think, unfortunately, you might have to say that they were, they were pretty sad. Um, yeah, and she was not in good health, uh, you know, with the combination of her alcoholism and also this illness that she had that affected her legs. Um, 
so, uh, so, so yeah, it was, it was, it was rough. They, they, they were really complicated, yeah. From from what yeah. you say and what I read in the book, they, they they were not easy ones. Right. Yeah. She she had a she had a hard time. But you know, if you talk to her her great niece, who has become really close to me, uh, she remembers Marion as so uh, joyous, you know, and 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 joyful. And you know, after they after they went to see My Fair Lady on Broadway, they would go on like a river cruise and, and act out all the parts and sing into the river. And, you know, so, so she has really wonderful memories of, of Marion during the happy times, you know, so she, of course, Marion didn't let the kids see the, see the hard times as much as she could help it. But, um, yeah, but she had a very strong personality because she lived through many tragedies, her her brother's death and and other deaths in the family. And, and uh, however, she still was able to to have a good time with the with the with the nephews and nieces, the the great nephews and nieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, I mean, the title of my book is Captain of Her Soul, right? Which evokes this poem. You know, the poem called uh, Invictus. If you read the poem Invictus, it's about the strength to overcome difficult circumstances. And one of the reasons why I chose that as a title is because that poem Invictus really sums up who Marion was. She met these challenges head on and and overcame them as much as she could. She had a very strong will and strong personality, and she knew who she was. Uh, and she she didn't let a whole lot get to her. Uh, you know, as, as much as she as she could, uh, and she knew how to overcome her difficulties because you see, starting you think, oh, she's not going to be an actress, but she made it. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's certainly that's... one thing. You so know, you and... you see that that she had a very strong will. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, she did. So thank you very much, Lara, for being with us today. It's been a real pleasure talking to to you about Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies, published by the University of California Press. Thank you very much for being here with us. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a lovely conversation. Thank you.